0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Beyond Carbon podcast. I'm George Dyer, Executive Director of the Intentional Endowments Network. And today, Chris and I had the pleasure of speaking with Jenna Nicholas. Jenna is the CEO of Impact Experience, a nonprofit that brings together community members, investors, companies, philanthropies and others to address some of the biggest challenges that our society faces from structural racism to climate change. Uh, She's worked in the impact investing field for many years. I first connected with her almost 10 years ago when she was managing Divest Invest Philanthropy and supporting foundations uh, in divesting from fossil fuels. And it was really great to catch up with her on her latest projects, Uh, one of which we talk about quite a bit is the Business Climate Finance Project. And this launched last fall with a new report developed by Mercer, looking at the climate impacts of 401k plans and corporate cash holdings finding that they're the largest source of emissions for many companies and a source that is often overlooked by those companies. Uh, And this is something that we've been looking at at IEN as well. We recently launched a pledge that colleges and universities are making to evaluate their 403B plan fund lineups and assessing them for the ESG and climate-friendly options that they hold. Um, So we talk about all these projects, and we also get into some of the anti-ESG attacks and where those are stemming from as well as the DOL rule and how that plays into all of this. Uh, So it was a great conversation. I really hope you enjoy it. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast, rate and review, and share it with your friends. Uh, And with that, here's our conversation with Jenna. Hi, Jenna. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Hi, it's great to be here.
0: Excellent. Yeah, we, uh, we're we really excited to have you. We've known each other for quite a while now, several years. And I think we first got to know each other when you were working at the uh, Divest Invest Philanthropy Initiative.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so it's really great to reconnect now.
0: Absolutely. You know, as usual, we'd love to just hear a little bit about kind of what brought you to that work back then. I mean, that was... What eight or nine years ago? I think it was around the time we were getting the intentional endowments network started as well. And so, yeah, just be really curious to hear sort of what brought you to that work initially, and then uh, we'll get into a little bit about where your career's gone from there.
1: Wonderful. Yes, it's been uh, it's been quite a journey. So, um, so my whole career has been in the impact investing space in in one way or another. So, I started my career working with the Calvert funds and was based between D.C. and and China, investing into socially responsible businesses and funds. And it was really through that work that I got to know the Wallace Global Fund. And as they were sort of launching the Divest Invest Philanthropy uh, Initiative, I had the opportunity to begin to work with them in sort of really spearheading and building this coalition of what ended up being about 170 foundations representing about $50 billion in assets under management, very much working in collaboration with groups like yourselves working with universities and others working with municipalities and pension funds and individuals and and others to really sort of catalyze the shift from from fossil fuels into into new economy solutions and I think much of the work engaged in now is really building off a lot of insights from from some of that work
0: yeah no it was exciting times i remember when that was really launching and and getting traction and um i'm just curious you know as As at that point in your career and as the whole sort of field was evolving, what are your reflections now, sort of a few years on about that kind of the impact of the divestment movement at that phase and where we are now?
1: Yes, I think in many ways, we're continuing to see much of that impact now. I mean, certainly on the foundation side, for foundations to be thinking about more of an alignment between their investments and their brand making. So historically, for foundations, there's been sort of quite a separation between the investments and the grant making, so much so that the grant making team might be investing in climate initiatives and climate advocacy work, and yet the endowment would be investing in fossil fuels, like really undermining a lot of the work of the grant making. I think we're increasingly seeing a lot less of that and a lot more of a conversation, not just as it even relates to fossil fuels, but just more broadly around how do we think about a total portfolio approach rather than isolating that. And I think that applies across different types of of institutions and and more broadly, just the institutionalization of the impact investing space. So having more and more of the traditional investment banks and others, you know, building out impact strategies and products, because particularly with the intergenerational wealth transfer that's taking place, more and more interest from their clients in, in having socially and environmentally responsible options
2: you know jen i i think you and i also met when way back when you were at divest invest and you know it's really interesting to hear you talk about that now and maybe maybe you can touch a little bit on how some of that work led to what you're doing at at impact experience and maybe talk a little bit about you know what what you're doing there
1: definitely yes and um, so one of the observations that it had in sort of helping to build this coalition of foundations was uh, often how disconnected so many of the funders and companies that we were working with and other in- institutions were from the communities in which they were looking at investing in, and particularly the lack of a focus often around diversity, equity, and inclusion as part of the investment decision-making and broader decision-making processes. And so that was a big part of the inspiration for co-founding Impact Experience about seven years ago now, really with the goal of how do we create intentional spaces to build bridges between investors, foundations, companies, students, artists, entrepreneurs, and communities that have been overlooked and underestimated. So a big part of our work is looking at equity across investments, education, healthcare, and of course, the environment and uh we look recently launched an initiative which we can talk more about business climate finance where we're working with companies to decarbonize their bank deposits and retirement accounts you know, all with a focus on justice equity diversity and inclusion and that also very much builds off a lot of the insights from the previous sort of divest invest uh, work as well
2: so do, are a lot of the is a lot of the work revolve around things like workshops and education and facilitation? How do you sort of see your role if you dig a little bit deeper into that?
1: Yes, that's definitely a core component of it. Typically, our workshops and engagements are part of a broader engagement that we may have with a a group or with a community. So to share a couple of examples, we've been Doing a lot of work over the last five years in Montgomery, Alabama, where Mm. we'll bring groups of companies, investors, foundations to really look at the historical context of structural racism and ways in which that's playing out to today in terms of how assets are allocated and how do we think about that, both with a racial, gender, climate equity lens. And so that is part of a broader engagement with these groups and thinking about across hiring, retention, board selection, investment decision-making, integrating more of an equity focus. We'll also do work internally within organizations, and the typical arc of our engagements will be initially typically six to nine months, and there's pre-curriculum and work that we'll engage people through. We'll have one-on-one conversations with each of the people engaging in the work to really understand what is the context that they're coming from, what questions do they have. So we can then curate the experiences around their particular areas of focus and interest. And all of our experiences end with everybody making a tangible set of commitments, the next steps, which we then track and help to support on the fulfillment over time.
0: That's so cool. I mean, it's a topic that comes up a lot in our conversations about thinking of, you know, about how impacted communities and people do or don't have their voice sort of in some of these conversations. And I'm just curious, like a little more detail on how that looks is it would it be looking at like a public company and how that their activities might influence a community or several communities? because I think that's one of the challenges, right? I mean, community needs and situations are so different around the country and around the world um that it can get very complex for investors to think about all of that so or is it sort of more looking at you know strategy investment strategies that could solve certain needs within those communities, whether it's affordable housing or things like that or Is it a mix?
1: It's a bit of both. And our work is both place-based and thematic. So certainly on the place-based side, so one of the communities that we've worked really actively in, and this also very much builds off a lot of the insights from the Divest Invest work was in southern West Virginia. And so this is a community with incredibly high rates of diabetes, obesity, drug offense rates, many laid off coal miners. And so a lot of the work there has been around Repurposing former coal mining land, looking at initiatives for retraining former coal miners. And in that case, a lot of that is looking at companies that could set up operations within the communities or could also make investments within the communities. So there's both a a hiring. So that's sort of one part of it is very much like how are we supporting and working with our local partners, which is a core aspect of the work in the broader economic revitalization within the communities that we're working in. But then also, how does this influence how these companies and funders think about their engagement in other communities that they're working in and their broader decision-making processes? So you know, we partner with a group called Illumin Capital that have a deep focus on bias reduction as part of their investment processes. And so we work with fund managers as part of their bias reduction work. And that's really looking that at that across. all of their investments uh, rather than any one given community.
2: You know, it seems like these examples that you gave are really on the ground, boots on the ground, really impactful at that level. But because you're including so many different organizations, right, from financial, philanthropic, that there's a little bit of a multiplier effect going on where you get organizations, you include them in this process, and then they can take that knowledge and and spread it elsewhere. Is that sort of the idea?
1: Yeah, that's a perfect description uh, summary there. And that's a big part of how we think about success and also is that ongoing collaboration amongst the community. So we now have about 4,000 people who have gone through these experiences. And a big part of how we think about success is you know, how are they deploying capital differently? How are they you know, collaborating both within the communities that we've had the experiences in, um, but also with one another, you know, more broadly around around their work as well?
0: Yeah, it's so cool. And how does it, Um, I mean, have you ever had examples come up where different community needs might be or appear to be kind of in direct conflict? And just to sort of think of a simple hypothetical example of like, you know, a community that's really benefited and relying on coal mining versus a community that's situated near a coal plant where the you know community of color say that is low income and suffering the health impacts of that and then the climate impacts that everyone suffers and and how has the have group sort of wrestled through some of those issues if they've come up
1: 100% i mean that's the nature of in so many of the communities that we work in that are exactly the types of challenges that you're talking about we've also done a fair bit of work in communities like in Puerto Rico and Houston after the hurricanes there and to to your point about you know just we see this so often that you know so much of the climate devastations the impact on communities of color is you know, that much greater than other communities and so part of our work is also how do we ensure in situations like that that there is a lens really from the beginning around looking at inclusive resiliency and recovery so it's not an afterthought but really in, engaged from the beginning so one key aspect of our work is really focused around the trust building part so particularly recognizing in many of the areas that we work in that there's a deep history of extraction in many of those communities the need to really start with with that trust building we actually always start with um, an exercise where everybody shares a symbol or an object that has significance to them and that's a big part of really how do we understand who people are beyond the assumptions that we may make about that, that given person. So in this work in West Virginia, for example, I remember very early on in one of our experiences, we had a former coal miner in the group who shared a piece of coal and talked about how coal, the significance of coal as part of his family and legacy and how he just thought about his identity. And there was somebody in the group, you know, had spent their lives investing into renewable energy projects. And the power of starting with that and realizing actually that they had so much more in common than they realized, then enabled when we were actually talking about some of these harder questions and decision-making processes, it was that much easier because there was the connection around, you know, what do we have in common rather than just what, what separates us.
0: Yeah. And kind of just starting at that, human level that's really great so important to meet people
2: where they are you know i mm-hmm. think in any of these come in any of these conversations and in discussions
0: that are that are really hard so yeah, so let's get a little bit into your uh, newest initiative, the business climate finance work, and maybe tell us. I know you all sort of launched it in September with a, a report, and maybe just tell us a little bit about that and, and kind of the goals of, of this work.
1: Yes, thank you for the question. It's been really exciting to see over the last you know six months the interest and engagement around this initiative. So exactly as you referenced, so we worked on a report with Mercer and the CFA Institute all looking at corporate retirement plans and GHG emissions. And a big part of the reason, as part of this business climate finance initiative, there's really a two-pronged approach, which is looking at decarbonizing with retirement plans, as well as cash deposits, all with a focus on justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And the reason that we're focused on these two areas is that for many companies, one of their greatest sources of emissions comes from their cash and retirement plans, but it's an area that's been largely overlooked. And so there's a huge opportunity for companies, particularly those that have made climate and sustainability commitments that maybe have overlooked this area to be able to consider this as part of their broader climate strategies. And so we have an ongoing community of practice of companies that are supporting each other and that we're also connecting to service providers around this work on the decarbonization across their financial supply chain. And so on the retirement side, a big part of what we think of as success is the ability for companies to have as a starting point within their retirement plan option lineups, uh, socially and environmentally responsible options. Ultimately, our goal would be that that would be the default options for these retirement plans, sort of taking it step by step. And then on the cash side, the unlocking of capital into community development finance institutions, minority deposit institutions, credit unions that have an intentionality around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion as part of their decision-making processes.
0: Yeah, it's so great. And it's exciting from our perspective at IEN, we've been working on something really similar for the last couple of years around the 403B plans that these institutions where you know a lot of endowments have been moving this direction, kind of seeing the benefits of addressing these risks and opportunities around climate and DEI and other ESG factors, but their plan lineups, not necessarily having those options for the employees. And as you say, I think just kind of an oversight and one, I think there's interest in addressing, but also a lot of complexity around and, you know, potentially challenges around. So curious, yeah, kind of early on what you're seeing on the corporate side of kind of the reactions and concerns around fiduciary duty and the DOL rule and these types of things coming up because both of those both of your of the
2: initiatives and you know sort of sit right in the crosshairs right now of sort of this quote unquote culture war that ESG and sustainable investing are sitting in right now so um yeah I am really interested to hear you know the thoughts about sort of the current you know polarization of this and sort of how we can work to sort of pull it out of this you know sort of widening gyre I think
1: Yes, this is definitely a topic that's top of mind uh, for us as part of the work. I mean, so a couple of pieces on this. One, just it's really exciting to dive more into some of the work that you've been engaging in on the university side of things. As I mentioned earlier with the diverse Invest work, you know, I think so much of what was so powerful about that was this collaboration across different types of institutions and the power of what can come about when you actually have the sort of collaboration across different types of institutions that are going about this work? So I think it's very much you know similar to sort of having both universities and companies and in other institutions you're know, looking at their at their retirement plans. In terms of the of Dol and the you know, current landscape, I think what was actually very smart about the f- phrasing in the Dol ruling of the sort of may versus must consideration on the ESG side is that. It actually makes the the grounds for actual like lawsuits and what have you. And I'm not a lawyer, but actually that much weaker because there's so much sort of openness that is given to institutions to consider for themselves or not uh, ESG, right? So I, so I think that while so much of the discourse you know right now and you know the media and to this point about the politicization is making it seem like you know, this is sort of oh, we're requiring institutions to consider ESG there's actually a lot of flexibility that you know is incorporated in that so i think that's an important part to to remember is that there's more openness there than it may than some people may have actually interpreted it as being i think it's a shame that it's become so politicized because when we even use the language of esg or impact investing there are so many different interpretations of that that it's it's not as if there's a a one-size-fits-all approach to, to thinking about ESG. And for that matter, that actually so much of ESG is just good governance, right? So even forgetting, you know, deep impact, which is, you know, I think so, so much of what we think about, but even for those that aren't necessarily thinking about, you know, deep impact, there's a lot of investors and companies that I know that consider ESG just as part of their good due diligence processes. So it's sort of ironic that it's become as politicized as it has. I do think that was in the short term, it's, you know, it's pretty challenging in the medium term, actually the opportunity for there to be an increased rigor around when we use the language around you know, ESG or impact, what do we actually mean? So that funds and others can't just be saying, oh, we do ESG and that's it. But there's actually an accountability that's built in uh, to that, that process. So and as I say, I think short term, it's pretty challenging, but in the medium term, you know, there are some kind of hopefully some bright spots that can come come from this current situation.
2: So maybe if we could dig a little bit deeper on in the uh, on the notion of sort of definitions and just the term ESG. And in, in our experience, I think that part of the reason for the backlash and and the polarization is that, as you mentioned, it means the term means different things to to different people right
0: how do you
2: think about the labels in in maybe some more detail and do you have your own way of sort of defining or categorizing the different you know approaches to sustainable investing
1: no I think it's a really important question and one that is uh, you know been working now and that impact investing space for the last of uh, 11 12 years and it's gone through you know, so many different iterations and i think even you know, to this day there's still people that will use a lot of these terms synonymously and i think generally often people will think about sort of impact investing sometimes more relating to sort of private investments and often sort of the esg or even like social responsible investing is sometimes referred to more on the public side of things but of course even that can often be blurred i do think one of the elements that has been you know really interesting in the development of the space you know has been to this point around metrics is having resources like the global impact investing networks impact reporting investment standards or the b labs b impact assessment score or you know some of these other frameworks for people being able to actually benchmark and assess uh, when they're saying this is this is impactful, being able to compare it to other companies that are also you know claiming to be impactful. So I do think that the increase in those types of tools and investors sometimes requiring or engaging their portfolio companies around uh, that ha- has helped to you know increase some of that um that engagement over time and and some funds that even sort of linking their, carry to the social and environmental performance of the of their portfolio that kind of creates a financial incentive for also having the mechanisms for measuring the social and environmental impact over time. I think all of those mechanisms make it you know that much easier for there to be you know streamlined process for me thinking about some of these questions.
0: Yeah it is good to see the field kind of evolving maturing around these and i think it's i mean in my view it's natural that there'll be some confusion and sort of a proliferation of terms as a new concept like this grows over several years and i think i think it is good and sort of a maybe a silver lining of all of this but i think it's one that would have happened anyways that it forces the field to kind of get clearer on these definitions and you know regulators are getting involved and i think on some level that's good but i also think we need to be realistic Chris, and I'm curious on your thoughts, but but also definitely Jenna, uh, given your work back to the divest invest stuff is that, you know, I think a lot of these attacks aren't coming based on lack of clarity on the definitions, but pretty directly from fossil fuel interests and other groups that want to preserve some sort of status quo and um, are really investing in that and investing in creating confusion and sort of dragging these issues into the, the quote-unquote culture wars. Um, there's a great piece I saw recently that was just sort of pleading for people to stop using the term culture war and, and making the case that this isn't just sort of a natural phenomena, but really a political tactic to to sort of mire these conversations into confusion and create doubt. So, you know, I think that's another perspective. It's it's kind of challenging you sort of get in this trap of Almost feeling like, you know, other sides to pick here, which I think is a shame and shouldn't be the case. But on some level, it's sort of where we're at. So I don't know, Jen, I'm curious. I know the divest invest movement was largely geared towards highlighting some of that stuff. And I'm curious your thoughts on sort of maybe an evolution of that with these ESG attacks.
1: Definitely, no, one hundred percent. I think that so much of what we're seeing is blowback from the fossil fuel industry, and I actually think what's interesting about it is it's in some ways a sign that what we're doing is working, right? And has and in, in has uh, is a testimony to some of the previous work, sort of building the momentum towards this moment. You know, it's if what we were doing, you know, when we, I mean, really the collective we here within the you know broader impact investing and social responsible community space, if what we were doing. Wasn't meaningful that we wouldn't be seeing the backlash that we're seeing. So um, again, whilst it's really you know challenging and frustrating in the short term, the fact that we're at this sort of crucible moment, um, in some ways, I think that we have been talking about the fact that something like this could happen, you know, for years, right? So it's in some ways it isn't a surprise, and actually, in some ways, I think part of the of opportunity is how do we make sure that on the other side that there is you know, the same level of coordination that, that we're seeing that in many ways that you know, is exists within the fossil fuel industry um, you know, more, you know, more broadly. I do think that there's also a whole sort of other part of this, which is that the fossil fuel industry also has a huge opportunity in how do you know, they repurpose assets and all of this. So I don't think it's all a us against them. And I think that so often, we get into this, you know, modality that perpetuates that. And I think sadly, because of the current reality and the way that the media is playing into this, that is so much how it feels. But I think there's some really interesting work that's taking place on the fringes of the you know, is you're thinking about some of these questions around the just transition and some of these areas um, that are, are you know really important to, that we uh, also you know highlight and uh, and sort of there's a roadmap there for how you know, fossil fuel companies could be you're thinking about some of these issues as well.
2: Yeah, and I think just some of the research that we are undertaking right now, looking at the transition plans and the actions that some of these fossil fuel companies are are taking, and you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I think with a, with a lot of this, I mean, there is no doubt that certain commitments are being made. There are actually investment dollars going into it, but, you know, investors and I think the public are going to look at these with a high degree of of skepticism and also depends on your view on some of these activities, right? It's, it's a lot of the activity, at least um, from the U S oil majors is going into carbon capture and direct air capture and if you believe that at the end of the day, that's going to be part of the solution, then you may look favor- favorably on that activity. Then you peel back the onion a little bit more and you realize that some of this activity is going into in- things like enhanced soil recovery, right? So does is, does that make a lot uh-huh. of sense? So uh, I think it's really, it's it's important to look at, at you know, sort of what these companies are, are doing. And um, it's not a black and white, I think, to us. Yeah.
0: And I think that's why it's so great. I mean, that's why I think investors are so important in this whole process, because they are so good at looking in at, at companies and evaluating them. And I think, Chris, as you're sort of alluding to, it's, it's complicated, it's complex. These are really big organizations, and they can be doing some great stuff on one side and some not so great stuff on the other side. And I think investors are pretty well suited to hash that out and to you know, answer the tricky questions and not only in terms of investments that you're talking about Chris in, in terms of sort of like business operations but also how do investments in lobbying and investments in you know marketing efforts or or through trade associations influence the dialogue and the political situation and and I think that's really tricky to to gauge as an investor but I think an important piece for investors to be looking at when they sort of look at the whole picture of these companies and and of course not to say that they're all created equal right I think some are probably much more genuinely moving towards a transition and looking to benefit from that and others might be more on the side of trying to slow things down or stall things so Mm -hmm. it's uh i think i agree it's not a neat neat picture but one that i think investors are really well suited to to look at
2: yeah and i think going back to maybe you know the whole divest invest when it first started out right you sort of treating the whole sector in, in the same way, and I think that a lot of investors now are taking a much more nuanced approach to looking at their, you know, fossil fuel investment principles. I think that also just in curious as is to is Jenna, sort of your reaction to, to this, but, you know, to, to us, a lot of investors, and I think maybe particularly those I want to say that are don't want to be unduly influenced by by this polarization or by you know, the sort of this us versus them, but unfortunately it's hard to get away from the notion of labels, right? Labels, narratives, and these pressures maybe to join or affiliate with organizations. And and I think what we try to do is we try to say, well, let's start from the basic question, right? As an investor, do you believe that things like undertaking activities to reduce waste, lower exposure to transition risks, improve relationships with your customers, your employees, the communities that you operate in. Do you think those types of activities can, you know, help companies maintain or improve their their long-term profitability and financial position? And in general, I mean the answer to that question is is going to be yes, right? But we have gotten involved so much with labeling activities and joining organizations that I think sometimes it makes it difficult. And uh, just sort of your reaction to that.
1: Yeah, no, and I I think there's a lot to that. And the and I think sadly, I I know a number of funds that are doing incredibly impactful work, but intentionally don't use the language around impact because of exactly this reason. The a fear of alienating investors. I think there's a whole other dimension of this, also, which is particularly for women and people of color run uh, fund managers and companies for that matter, the fear that, oh, are they going to be just bucketed into a, oh, this is concessionary returns because you're saying impact and you're a diverse manager or, or you know, company. Um, and so it's this really, I think we're in a really interesting moment in time where, to your point, that labels for a number of reasons can actually feel like more of an impediment than an opportunity. Um, and that's when I think coming, da- coming back to the underlying dynamics of you know, how are we actually just thinking about good principles for governance and decision making and um, you know, responsible community engagement. And that actually is you know, so much of what we're talking about. You know, it was deeply aligned with fiduciary responsibility, um, but we've sort of lost sight of of some of that you know, because of the uh, politicization of labels in many ways
0: yeah, and I'd love to before we wrap up, kind of come back to the d o l rule on that note because I think maybe you alluded to this, Jenna, but you know we've had this sort of back and forth between administrations of saying e s g or similar themes are are permissible or a tiebreaker or not permissible or you know it's kind of gone back and forth. but I think the one common thread that has not changed at all is that you know pecuniary factors and Uh, strategies, fund options that maximize returns has been the consistent sort of theme through all of that back and forth. And I think to this point that using ESG factors in the investment process to identify risks and opportunities is designed to do just that. And um, in, in my view, I think that makes a pretty clear case for allowing those types of strategies into plan lineups or as the default option, because so long as it's done from a pecuniary perspective. So yeah, curious on your thoughts on that as you dive into the business finance work.
1: Definitely. No, and I appreciate you bringing that up. You know, and I think one piece also just on this and, it's, and I think there's parallel sort of statistics on the university side too, but just looking at the amount of capital and the opportunity set that exists here. So just to name a couple of pieces. So there are currently over $8.4 trillion in assets that are held in like 110 million 401k uh, employee retirement plans across the U.S. and what's interesting is that actually the majority of Americans who are kind of relying on ERISA plans to save for retirement, you know, currently don't even have the option of being able to invest into sort of climate-safe portfolios. And that you know, so currently it's less than three percent of defined contribution plans. And this is a big part of what we explore in the in the report that we launched with you know Mercer and the CFA Institute. And that I think why this is so interesting is that particularly for like companies and I think universities similarly that are looking to um, attract and retain talent that is increasingly looking to be in environments that are aligned with their values like this is it's such a low-hanging fruit opportunity for people to even just increase the opportunity set of what's possible what's also interesting is for so many companies some actually do have retirement plan options that are socially and environmentally responsible, but there's been such little employee engagement and education around that that many employees don't even know that those options exist. And so, I think that like part of the call to action that I think the DOL ruling has kind of opened up you know, is the possibility to actually have uh, these uh, educational engagements um. And the you know, the opportunity for 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 employees and others to to have that alignment.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm curious your thoughts on the um the target date fund options too. I know that's been sort of an issue for a while. And you know, Texas had an early one and then BlackRock. And I think just in the past few weeks, right? We saw Putnam and was it State Street also? Are going so, to be offering options yeah. now? So that's got to be good for yeah. the you know, options.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, and there are other, you know, socially and environmentally responsible retirement options that, you know, uh, have shorter track record and lower assets at this point, but are really sort of building momentum in this space. And so I, you know, I do think what is exciting is seeing more and more of this product coming you know, onto the platforms and particularly with the target date funds, because, for you know, so many companies, for very you know valid reasons that their main strategies are through target date funds, that being able to have you know more opportunities to consider you know, as part of that is uh, you know is really important.
2: No, I, I think I think that's really interesting that you know you're seeing the increasing you know number of providers offering these target date funds. That's encouraging because some of the statistics that I've seen, especially around plan sponsor offerings and provider offerings, the plan sponsors are actually for fiduciary reasons, trying to actually lessen the number of offerings from a fiduciary risk perspective. I don't know if you've sort of seen that in your experience too, if you're you know, talking about adding just options, do, do you see a reticence to do that because of the sort of the trend of maybe offering less than more now?
1: Really great question. And actually what's been really interesting for me recently is I've had the opportunity. So I serve as a trustee for a, uh, actually for a company's 401k plan lineup. And so it's been interesting to kind of see from the inside that, um actively going through this process because the company is wanting to, uh, and is really actually almost in the final stages now of uh, integrating socially and environmentally responsible options into their retirement plan lineup. And exactly this conversation that you're talking about here, Chris, came up where the, and it was actually, I have to say, so fascinating engaging with the advisors around this, because, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity and this, we saw this firsthand for the, also this, the educational journey for, for advisors around the opportunity set, because this was very new, to them, as they were, you know, doing the research for for us around this. But what they were saying was, we want to make sure that we're not just increasing the opportunities in the lineup, but actually, what are we taking out and replacing across different um, sort of asset classes uh, with new options that have a socially environmentally responsible option. So we're going to actually end up at the end of the day in this particular case with actually probably slightly even fewer overall options. I mean, we are honestly about the same. But we've actually, what's been so interesting is, and they did a, the analysis purely from a financial perspective. So they had, they compared socially, and environmentally responsible options in each of the asset classes with just traditional options. And they found that actually the socially, environmentally responsible options perform better on their financial benchmarks than the options that they already had on their lineup. So that was a really interesting example of where, going through the process of actually you know layering in this additional analysis on top of what they would do anyway as just part of their their normal process, they actually found that you know, replacing some of their the current options with these socially environmentally responsible options that were we actually led to a better better overall portfolio approach. So the long and the short of it is. Yes, the the you know sticking within often I think the sort of sweet spot is sort of 10 to 12 you know, options for, for many companies as part of their lineup, but it doesn't necessarily mean that by including socially and environmentally responsible options, you're going above that threshold, but actually laying it into your already existing asset allocation strategy.
2: I yeah, no, Thank you. Thanks for sharing that, that anecdote. I think that it's insightful and I think the listeners will be able to take some <laughs> practical takeaways for that, especially if you're a fiduciary for a, uh, for a defined contribution plan, for sure. Well, well Jenna, I, th- I think, you know, we want to thank you for joining us today. This has been a terrific uh, conversation and I think, you know, for our listeners really encourage everyone to go to impact-experience.com. Did I get that right?
1: Yes. Impact-experience.com. Yes,
2: exactly. Impact-experience.com. And you can learn more about uh, the great work that Jenna and her team are doing. So if if there's nothing else, maybe we should wrap it up, George, let Jenna get back to her conference in San Diego.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Jenna. This has been great to connect and uh, have this conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time and we look forward to uh, continuing to work with you on all this.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation as well. Thanks, Jenna.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Carbon Podcast with me, George Dyer, and Chris Ito, presented by the Intentional Endowments Network and FFI Solutions. If you have a moment, please rate, review, and follow or subscribe to the podcast. It will help us reach more people, and we'd really appreciate it. If you have any questions, ideas for speakers, or other feedback, please email us at info at